Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I'm Dee Dee West, and this is Broken Limelight. For today's episode, we're going to talk about R. Kelly. Dude, this story is nuts. It's This is probably going to be a two-parter, by the way, at least. R. Kelly's accusations date back to the early 90s, and believe it or not, people still think he's innocent. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, R. Kelly made some of the greatest R&B hits in the 90s and 2000s, and then suddenly, all these women started, well, girls, really, they all started coming out with accusations of accusing him of sex crimes. There were even sex tapes that were being sold on the street with, of R. Kelly with a minor. So if for some reason you haven't heard all of this yet, uh, let me go ahead and let this be your trigger warning. This episode is going to include the theme of sex abuse against children a lot. Before I start, I want to tell you about the book I read for my research. It's called Soulless, The Case Against R. Kelly, and it's by Jim DeRogatis. Jim is a music critic, but he was sent information about R. Kelly, and he ended up being the guy who investigated this case. In fact, Jim was the one who received the notorious P-tape in uh, early 2000s. Also, Lifetime made a show called Surviving R. Kelly. It's like a, a docu-series. And it's full of interviews from the witnesses, like uh, the victims and people who worked with R. Kelly. It's definitely eye-opening. So uh, brace yourselves. Here we go. R. Kelly was born Robert Sylvester Kelly in Chicago, and he has been credited as the Pied Piper of R&B and the King of Pop Soul. I might be calling him Robert or Rob throughout the episode. He was known for hits like I Believe I Can Fly, Ignition Remix, Bump and Grind, The World's Greatest, and so on. His mother's name was Joanne Kelly, and his father's identity was unknown. There is no father listed on his birth certificate. Joanne raised all four kids on her own. Robert was very close to his mother. He and his siblings all had different fathers, and Robert didn't look like either of his brothers, Bruce or Carrie. They were both a little bulkier and fuller in the face, where Robert was tall and lanky. He was also a pretty timid kid. Joanne said that Robert was the one she was worried about the most. He was sensitive. This sounds a lot like Marvin Gaye's relationship with his mom. Anyway, Robert is known for having a love for McDonald's. It's legitimately his happy place. Joanne would take him to McDonald's almost every morning. He had once said that she would fix a cup of coffee for herself and she'd wear this cheap lipstick and she would leave this red lipstick ring around the cup and he would turn it around and drink from that part, taste the lipstick and the coffee at the same time. He said, if I could, I would have married my mom. One time as an adult, he had a rough day and he took his crew to McDonald's and asked for uniforms and he spent the next three hours slinging Big Macs and stuff. Robert started singing in church when he was eight years old. In fact, he was following in his mother's footsteps. Joanne sang for the church and she was amazing. At home, she would sing Gladys Knight songs and Robert, Bruce, and Carrie would all play her pips. 
When he was eight, he had his first little girlfriend named Lulu. Robert said that Lulu was his first inspiration for love songs. They would hold hands and play house in a cardboard box, and they would pretend to eat meals in their house together and stuff. One day, they were playing by a creek that was prone to dangerous flooding. Some older kids showed up and started pushing them around, and Lulu got shoved into the rushing water. The older kids just kind of panicked and ran away, and neither Robert nor Lulu knew how to swim. So Robert helplessly watched the fast-moving current just carry her away while she screamed his name. After a while, some adults showed up, and Robert and them walked downstream until they found Lulu's lifeless body with her head crushed against the big rock. Robert saw the whole bloody scene. And this is just one of many traumatic events in Robert's childhood. R. Kelly grew up in a house full of women, like his older sister, his mom and her sisters, and all of their female friends. And it was said that when his mom or grandparents weren't home, they would wear more revealing clothing, like wear nightgowns with nothing underneath. He says that he started to get curious and aroused, which in turn made him kind of confused and ashamed as such a young boy. One time, he came home from school early, and he walked in on one of these female relatives having sex with the man, and she said to him, You can watch, but you better not say shit to nobody about this. On another occasion, he stumbled upon this couple again, and they directed him to take photos of them with a Polaroid. Robert said, They got into positions where I could see their private parts. I snapped the picture. When she showed me how it took only a minute to develop, I was amazed. The photographic technology impressed me more than the sex. She grabbed the photo and kept it for herself. I took the memory of them doing the dirty and stashed it inside my mind's brick box. On yet another occasion, eight-year-old Robert fell asleep on the couch and he woke up to a woman who was ten years older than him performing oral sex on him. She also threatened him to keep quiet, saying, You better not say shit to no one or else you're going to get a terrible whooping. So he didn't tell anybody. And they're also in the south side of Chicago, so he also knew that it was important for him to not be a snitch. According to Robert, the sexual contact with this woman moved on to intercourse and went on for about six years. According to his brother Carrie, the abuser was their older half-sister, Teresa, and she allegedly abused both of them. Carrie openly blames Teresa for Robert's hypersexuality as an adult, and Teresa has never publicly spoken about either of her half-brothers. When Robert was about 10, an older man who was close to the family, they called him Mr. Blue, he invited Robert into his apartment and gave him a piece of watermelon, and then he disappeared into the shower, and when he came out, he was wearing a robe. He then opened the robe and exposed himself to Robert and offered him $5 to touch his penis. Robert ran out the door, and Mr. Blue was yelling after him that he better not tell anybody. But this time, Robert did speak out after he learned that a friend had a similar encounter with Mr. Blue. So, Joanne called the police, and they never saw Mr. Blue again. Allegedly, Joanne at one point revealed to a family friend that Robert had also been abused by a man within the family, either an uncle or someone close who they just called uncle. From the sound of it, Robert was very confused and may have been angry at his mom for not protecting him. Robert Brothers Carrie said that a man named Mr. Henry exposed himself to all three brothers and that he was the one who told Joanne. According to mental health professionals, male survivors may struggle with sex addiction and sometimes be plagued with nightmares. 
Robert is actually known to sleep in his bedroom closet, as he says it gives him peace of mind. He also said that he has dreams about being raped by a woman or being cornered or chased and shot at. Also, when children are sexually abused, they tend to experience things like fear and shame, but they also might feel aroused, and that's confusing. So what happens is these victims might associate the arousal with the victimization and humiliation and discomfort and may fetishize the things they've experienced, like voyeurism or documenting their sexual encounters on camera. When he was somewhere between 11 and 13, it varies as he tells the story. He was shot in the shoulder while riding his bike, and he still carries the bullet with him in his shoulder to this day. He said that two boys shot him while trying to steal his bike, but a family member said that he was actually very, very depressed and shot himself. Robert struggled with a learning disability, which he called more than dyslexia, and he didn't know how to read or write. Or at least there were a lot of specific words that he really struggled with. He also wasn't great at math. He would struggle like when he would have to count his change or buy something at the store as a kid. So he dropped out of high school and focused on music. However, he kept going back to his high school for another six years so that he could rehearse with the choir. He adored his music mentor. Her name was Lena McLynn. He calls her his second mother. And Lena McLynn has quite a history. Some of her other students include Jennifer Hudson, Mandy Patinkin, and Shaka Khan. Lena actually convinced Robert to quit playing basketball to focus on his music, which was a huge deal for him. Basketball and music were his two passions. There's a biography about R. Kelly. It's called Soul the Coaster, The Diary of Me. It's by David Ritz and R. Kelly. By the way, David Ritz is the same guy who wrote the biography by Marvin Gaye that I mentioned in another episode. So in Solar Coaster, Robert talks about how he has this uncontrollable preoccupation with music. As a child, when he would try to read, the words would jump off the pages and turn into musical notes. He thought there was something wrong with him, but eventually he just embraced it. Fun fact for you. In 1995, R. Kelly got his first Grammy after he wrote and composed and produced Michael Jackson's final number one hit, You Are Not Alone. Interestingly, this song kind of marks the fading of Michael Jackson's stardom and the rising of R. Kelly's. In 1987, Barry Hankerson, who was a record producer who was once married to Gladys Knight and also happens to be the uncle of Aaliyah, he went to Chicago for a production of a gospel musical that he was producing, and the, the audition is where he first heard Robert's voice. He offered him $700 a week to be in the show, but Robert told him that he couldn't read or memorize the lines. So instead, Robert gave Barry some of his demos, and Barry took him on as one of his client artists. In 1991, he signed with Jive Records. He had a strong team behind him, including Barry Hankerson as his manager and Demetrius Smith, who worked as his tour manager and personal assistant. Demetrius is actually one of the people who spoke on Surviving R. Kelly. He was a witness, well, more than a witness, to R. Kelly's marriage to Aaliyah. He stuck by Robert's side for 13 years before quitting in 1995. Robert's career finally started to take off in about 1992 when he collaborated with Public Announcement for the album Born Into the 90s. In 1993, he released his first album that was credited only to him, 12 Play. In the album cover, he's wearing an open black vest revealing his chest, and he's holding a cane which, if you really look at it, you can see that it's actually what's called a dirty old man walking stick, 
which is essentially a cane with an adjustable mirror at the bottom so that you can use it to peek under a woman's skirt. Shortly after that album, Joanne died of cancer. This is another story that varies as Robert tells it. Once, he said that he rushed to her deathbed and she kicked him out, told him to leave. In another account, he said that he stayed and bared his soul to her, apologized for everything he's ever done wrong, and promised to become the greatest singer and songwriter the world has ever seen. Robert's brother Carrie actually tells a different story. According to him, Robert cut off communication with Joanne and basically shunned her after his career took off, supposedly because he didn't like her husband Lucius. Which was a lot considering how much he cherished her. When Robert got his first big paycheck from Jive, his crew shamed him for buying himself a new Mercedes while his mom was still driving a beat-up little Ford that she had to hotwire to start. A family friend said that he was reluctant to share anything with her and refused to deal with her medical bills, even though he had the money. This friend believes that he was angry with everyone for failing to protect him, to the point that it set off something in him and he started abusing other people. So, let's talk a little bit about Aaliyah. Aaliyah was born in 1979, so she was about 12 years younger than Robert. Aaliyah also started singing in church, and her parent proudly paid for singing lessons. When she was 10, she was on Star Search, and when she was 11, she joined her ex-aunt Gladys Knight for a five-night stint in Bally's Hotel here in Las Vegas. Gladys said about Aaliyah, She was brought up in the old school, a sweet, sweet girl. She would walk into a room and you would feel her light. She'd hug everyone and she meant it. At 14, Barry started Blackground Records and Aaliyah was the first artist he signed. Barry then introduced her to Robert, who then became her mentor, as well as lead songwriter and producer of her album, Age Ain't Nothing But a Number. Which, like, they may as well called the album, I'm a Pedophile. The song came out in May 1994, so Aaliyah was 15 by the time the album was released, and it's basically about a young girl trying to get with an older guy and trying to get him to sleep with her, telling him not to be afraid. And like, Robert is literally writing these lyrics for this child to sing. Not to mention the album cover where Aaliyah's posing and Robert's like, lurking in the background staring at her. One time, Robert and Aaliyah appeared on a show on BET, and one of the hosts said, Everybody seems to think that you're either girlfriend and boyfriend or cousins. And Aaliyah's like, well, no, we're not related. Um, we're just very close. He's my very best friend. That same year, one of Robert's backup singers, Javante Cunningham, allegedly caught Robert and Aaliyah having sex in a tour bus. This is her quote. We were out on the road with Aaliyah on a tour bus. There really aren't many confined spaces. When you get on the bus, there are these bunks. And so these bunks have little curtains you can pull at night if you don't want anybody to see you sleeping. So it just so happened we were all laying in our bunks and the curtains are open. Everybody's communicating, laughing. When the curtain flew open on the bus, Robert was having sex with Aaliyah. Aaliyah's mom called this woman a liar and claimed that her husband and her were always present on tours with Aaliyah. In August 1994, Robert and Aaliyah were illegally married. Apparently, Robert called up Demetrius and told him that Aaliyah was pregnant and they needed to get married. Aaliyah was still 15, so they falsified documents to say that Aaliyah was actually 18. Allegedly, they bribed somebody at the county clerk's office to do this. Some sources say that it was a surprise wedding and Aaliyah didn't even know about it until it was about to happen. 
Demetrius now says that he could see that Aaliyah was scared and uncomfortable, and he's not proud of all this. He's the one who gives the most detailed account about the wedding. He wrote about it in his book, The Man Behind the Man, which is about his time working with Robert. As Demetrius describes it, he and Robert flew back home while Aaliyah stayed at the hotel where they got married, but within a day, she went home to Detroit and told her parents everything. A family member said, The issue with the family was to move on and to totally undo what Robert Kelly did. We just thought, this guy is stupid. He's like a big, dumb 15-year-old himself. At the time, we didn't think about pedophilia. We just thought, how dumb can you be, boy? You're lucky we're the family. We embraced her and she cried and she said she never wanted to see him again. We were apprehensive and we watched her, but we never took away the telephone or the mobility to leave the house. She just never saw him again. So after the wedding, Aaliyah ended up having an abortion, allegedly, because no documents have actually been found proving that she was really pregnant, and they had the marriage annulled in February 1995. Demetrius reportedly quit working for Robert the same year out of disgust over his behavior, although Robert's team claims that they actually fired him. Barry Hankerson also started to back away from Robert after that and ended up quitting in 2000, though again, Kelly's team would say that he was fired. Some people, including Aaliyah's mother Diane, deny that Aaliyah and Robert ever had any kind of sexual relationship. Robert and Aaliyah have never admitted to anything. They always said that they were just very best friends. But if you've watched Surviving R. Kelly or looked into this case, you probably know that there are a lot of witnesses who testify that they know for a fact that the pair was engaged in a sexual relationship. Even though Diane says that she was always present whenever Aaliyah went on tour, there's a lot of witnesses who say that they've seen Aaliyah plenty of times at R. Kelly's studio without her parents there. According to Lisa Van Allen, who is another one of R. Kelly's survivors, she says that Robert told her that he actually slept with Diane too. She revealed, He said that when Aaliyah would go to sleep, he would go into the living room and they would do sexual acts on the couch while Aaliyah was asleep in the bedroom. This makes me wonder if maybe Diane really thought that she actually, maybe she thought that she was Robert's girlfriend, and maybe that was proof to her that he couldn't be with Aaliyah. I know that sounds naive, but one thing that Robert's survivors all have in common is that they say that he's so charming and manipulative that they would find out months into their relationship with him that he was seeing dozens of other women, or girls. He literally would charm them for months without any of them knowing about each other. In 1996, Robert was sued by Tiffany Hawkins for $10 million. Tiffany was an aspiring singer. She met Robert in 1991 when she was 15 years old and he was 24. Apparently, her and her friend were on a bus and they saw his car and they were starstruck. So they got off the bus and they approached him and he gave them his home address and told them to come over and bring some friends. While they were hanging out at his house, she sang for him and he reportedly fell out of his chair when she hit a high note. And this is a common story. A few of the young girls that R. Kelly dated were young, aspiring singers, and they would sing to him and he would act like he was so impressed and had to help them become stars. She actually sang backup for Born Into the 90s too and was a backup rapper on Agent Nothing But a Number. So, Tiffany's story continues. She says that a bunch of people were hanging out inside of Robert's bedroom. She would go in and out of the bedroom, and each time he would be having sex with somebody. At some point, it became an orgy. 
She says that all the girls there were between 14 and 16 years old, which she thought was weird. But she also figured, well, he's a star. Maybe this is just how things are. And that's how they get you. So Tiffany says that she and Robert had more like a sibling-like relationship at first. She actually introduced him to five or six of her girlfriends, who all had sex with him, all before she actually slept with him herself. Robert had a way of making her feel important and capable of anything. Tiffany was also homeless, by the way. Her mother's boyfriend was abusive, so she had to run away and was living on the streets. So Robert also provided her food and shelter, and these are all things that, unfortunately, predators seek out. They seek out vulnerable people as prey who they know don't have a support system and, furthermore, probably don't have a lot of self-esteem. That, in turn, makes it easier for them to convince you later that nobody wants you and you would be stupid to leave the only person who cares about you, the abuser. Tiffany and R. Kelly had sexual contact for roughly three years, ending just before her 18th birthday. So in 1996, Tiffany sued him for personal injuries and severe emotional harm because she had sex with the singer and he encouraged her to participate in group sex with him and other underage girls. The lawsuit also explains that R. Kelly would kick her out of the studio whenever she didn't want to have sex. She agreed to do some of the acts that he demanded in the studio and at his homes, including threesomes with underage girls, and it claimed that she had traveled with Robert and had sexual contact with him on his tour bus in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Indiana, and Washington, D.C. This is important because he is traveling with minors across state lines, and all of these states tend to have different laws regarding the age of consent. In 1997, Tiffany planned to use Robert and Aaliyah's marriage certificate to show that Robert had a history of inappropriate relationships with young girls. Aaliyah then filed to have that record expunged, despite the fact that she had been denying that this marriage ever happened for years. Tiffany gave a seven-and-a-half-hour deposition to Robert's attorneys, where she described her relationship with him and mentioned other minors. Robert actually sued Tiffany back, claiming that she threatened to make false accusations against him if he didn't give her big money and a record deal. In 1998, Robert paid Tiffany $250,000 to drop the suit and made her sign an NDA, or a non-disclosure agreement, barring her from talking about any relationship or settlement with R. Kelly. Here's something interesting. Robert actually filed a liability claim with his homeowner's insurance to try to get them to pay Tiffany's settlement. So if you don't know much about insurance, homeowner's insurance comes with a liability portion for instances like if somebody gets hurt in your home or if your dog bites someone and then they sue you. Those are just examples. So in 1999, Hartford Insurance Company actually sued him for making that claim. Robert appealed that, bold of him, and Hartford responded that the underlying complaint against the insured sufficiently set forth factual allegations of sexual misconduct with a minor to exclude coverage under an expected or intended exclusion. Basically, they're saying that the damages were done intentionally and the insurance doesn't cover intentional damage. A couple months later, Tiffany attempted suicide. Robert denies all the allegations and says that he never had sex with Tiffany. This whole lawsuit was kept under wraps until the year 2000 when someone anonymously sent a fax revealing all the details to the reporter, Jim Derogatis. So Tiffany brought friends over to Robert's house frequently. Among these friends was a classmate whose name hasn't been revealed yet. 
According to this classmate, Robert promised to make both of them stars. He also convinced them to drop out of high school, telling them that high school won't make them millionaires. So they both ended up taking their advice, and that classmate says that she now deeply regrets that. Another friend of Tiffany's is Javante Cunningham. She has said a lot in this case. She was one of the ones who testified that she saw Robert and Aaliyah having sex on the tour bus. In Surviving R. Kelly, she also describes a time in the recording studio where she sees her friend bent over and Robert behind her doing her. And that friend was actually 16-year-old Tiffany Hawkins. So again, in 2000, Jim Derogatis received an anonymous fact, and here's just a little bit of what it said. Dear Mr. Derogatis, I'm sending this to you because I don't know where else to go. You wrote about R. Kelly a couple of weeks ago and compared him to Marvin Gaye. Well, I guess Marvin Gaye had problems, too. But I don't think that they're like Robert's. Robert's problem, and it's a thing that goes back many years, is young girls. The facts goes on to describe different cases of young girls that Robert has abused. It continues, right now, he's messing with a 13-year-old girl who he tells people is his goddaughter. This one has been going on for more than two years now, and her parents are turning a blind eye because Robert hired her father, who is a bass player. The girl they're talking about is actually Rashonda Landfair, and she is the niece of the singer Sparkle. She is also the girl who is allegedly in that P-tape. We'll get to that. So throughout Jim's investigation, he came across a document from September 29, 1994, which was less than a month after Robert and Aaliyah's wedding. The document was signed by Robert, Aaliyah, and both of Aaliyah's parents, Diane and Michael Houghton. The agreement stipulated that, in consideration of payment of $100 by Robert to Aaliyah, the two would sever all personal and professional contact and pledge to avoid any public comment about their relationship or the separation agreement, quote, due to the nature of the music industry and its ability to endanger rumors and disseminate personal information, both true and untrue. Sources later revealed that Robert actually paid Aaliyah $3 million off the books. That makes more sense, because like $100 and they're both these big stars? That didn't make any sense. So, in the agreement, Robert admits to no liability or wrongdoing, and Aaliyah and her parents discharged him from any future legal claims due to, quote, a decline in her ability, reputation, or marketability, emotional distress caused by any aspect of her business or personal relationship with Robert, or physical injury or emotional pain and suffering from any assault or battery perpetrated by Robert against her person. That's interesting. According to Demetrius, Robert was really depressed after the breakup, and he checked into a hotel and spent more than a month sleeping in the closet. Nine days after his wedding to Aaliyah, Robert and his crew were staying at the Michelangelo Hotel near Times Square, and police arrested two of his bodyguards in a hotel room on charges of raping and sodomizing a 22-year-old woman. It was reported that police were looking for a third suspect, and a source revealed to Jim that the incident actually involved Robert and an underage girl with a fake ID. Demetria said that the girl tried to escape from Robert, so the two bodyguards rushed to his room and they stayed to talk to police while Robert fled. He said that Robert paid them and then he treated them like shit. They took the fall for him and then he had no respect for them after that. After Aaliyah and Robert split up, Aaliyah decided to leave Jive and she signed with Virgin Records. 
an executive at Virgin said, whenever Robert Kelly comes up, she doesn't even want to speak his name. When she came over to this label, we were all told on the sly, don't ever bring up R. Kelly's name. It's just one of those weird topics. In 2000, Robert employed Regina Daniels as his publicist, and she gave Jim a statement that had exceeded what anyone on Kelly's team was allowed to say, and she got in trouble for it later. What she said was, Robert did date Aaliyah. Yes, he did. And he did have a relationship with Aaliyah. Yes, he did. And past that, unfortunately, it didn't work out, and that was really that. Did they have a relationship? Yes, they did. I'm not going to sit here and bullshit you or nobody else about it. Yes, they did. Did they get married? Well, there was a marriage certificate, so that pretty much kind of means something happened there. Was I there? No, I wasn't. But there was a relationship. It ended with, maybe we're over our heads. Maybe this is too much. Maybe we need to go our separate ways. I love you. I always will. I wish you the best. And maybe we just jumped in way too deep into this thing. And she went her way and he went his. Well, Regina, I can see why you got in trouble for saying that. In 1996, Robert married a 22-year-old dancer named Andrea Lee. She also goes by Drea. This marriage wasn't mentioned much in the media. There weren't a lot of pictures of them in public. Demetrius said he married Andrea to take the attention off Aaliyah, but he never talks about her. He continues that Robert never stopped pursuing other girls. In 1999, Robert started talking to a 17-year-old girl who had no idea he was married. His assistant snuck a little piece of paper with Robert's phone number into her hand, and the two started talking over the phone. They had phone sex, and Robert told her that they were soulmates. She believed that he loved her. So when he sent her a plane ticket to visit him in Chicago for her 18th birthday, she had sex with him for the first time. As soon as she found out they were married, they started fighting and eventually stopped hooking up. So far, there's been a handful of girls that we've mentioned who were abused by Robert up to the year 2000. Let's go back to that fax that Jim got that mentions the 13-year-old girl who Robert is allegedly currently messing with at the time of the fax in 2000. So the fax mentions that Robert tells people the girl is his goddaughter and that he hired her father to play bass for him. Okay, so R. Kelly released the album TP2.com in 2000. In the notes, he gives thanks to his goddaughter Roshana, Greg, and Valerie. Now, there's someone named Greg Landfair who was credited as the guitarist on TP2.com, and he's got a wife named Valerie and a daughter named Rashonda, who also goes by Rashana. Rashana was now 14, and four sources confirmed that she had ongoing sexual contact with Robert. Robert was also having sex with another girl who was close to Rashana and was only 13. This girl's identity has not been revealed either. So Jim tried, but he wasn't able to get information from Roshana or her parents, but he was able to get in contact with her aunt Stephanie Edwards, who was also known as the singer Sparkle. Sparkle was once married to Earl Robinson, who was a member of Public Announcement with Robert. She sang backup on Age Ain't Nothing But a Number, where she got to know Aaliyah's posse, the Second Chapter Girls. The Second Chapter Girls were made up of Aaliyah, Javante, Tiffany, and possibly one more girl. By all accounts, Robert tried to seduce Sparkle, but she was not having it. She wanted to keep the relationship strictly professional. Sparkle introduced Robert to her family, including her brother-in-law, Greg Lanfair, and her niece, Rashonda. She introduced Rashonda to Robert when she was 12 because she's a rapper, and she was hoping Robert could help her get her foot in the door. According to Sparkle, she would come to the studio sometimes, and Rashonda would be there. So she would be like, 
what are you doing here? Who's here with you? And Rashonda would say, oh, I got dropped off. And that made Sparkles livid. She could not believe that she had been left alone there with Robert. By December 2000, Rashonda and her parents had been interviewed twice already and all denied that she ever had any kind of sexual contact with Robert. Jim actually got an email from an anonymous source who worked for the Department of Child and Family Services that stated that Rashonda's parents apparently let Kelly take the girl on the road with him and have sexual relationships with her with their full knowledge and consent. On December 21st, 2000, Jim and his partner released a story in the Chicago Sun-Times titled, R. Kelly Accused of Having Sex with Teenage Girls. Unfortunately, that report didn't get a lot of attention. Other news and media outlets didn't report on it, and fans weren't really phased either. An editor had interviewed members of R. Kelly's audience at a holiday concert, and this one 18-year-old fan said, His personal life doesn't really concern me. A 29-year-old woman said, I know Robert. It's not like him. It's a publicity stunt on the girl's part. So by this point, R. Kelly has literally had a pattern of predatory behavior for about a decade, allegedly. Lives were ruined. I mean, Tiffany Hawkins tried to kill herself and nobody really seemed to care. Throughout Jim's investigation, he kept hearing mention about the girl in Miami, but he was never able to identify her or locate her until 18 years later when she emailed him in 2018. This was Lizette Martinez, and she was 17 years old the first time she had sex with Robert. Lizette Martinez was also an aspiring singer. She met Robert one day in 1995 while strolling around the mall. She saw him walking around with a bodyguard, and she squealed and said, Oh, that's R. Kelly. He overheard her, and he went over and gave her a hug. After he walked away, the bodyguard pressed a piece of paper with his phone number in her hand and told her that she should meet them later by the sports authority. This is so familiar. So Lizette and her friend met up with Robert and his crew and they took them to Outback Steakhouse. Lizette noticed that Barry Hankerson kept looking at her with a fatherly concern, like he felt bad and wanted to help her. The age of consent was 18 in Florida, so she told him honestly, I'm 17 and I'm in high school. And Robert was just like, oh, okay. She also told him that she's a singer, and he sounded super eager to audition her and help her out, just acting like the coolest guy in the world. Again, familiar. Lizette's friend was direct and less shy, and she just came out and asked him, didn't you marry Aaliyah? This was 1995, so it was just months after that marriage was annulled. But man, I love the balls on this girl. She's like 17 and the first person to just point out that pattern. But she didn't know that Barry was Leah's uncle, and he was sitting right there, so Lizette was, like, mortified. Robert just said, you can't believe everything you read. The next day, the girls went to visit him at the recording studio, and she sang for him. He made her promises of helping her write songs and signing her as an artist when he starts his own label, but that never happened. Lizette would write her own songs alone, and Robert would always claim to be busy. Lizette didn't drink or do drugs. But one night she went to a party at Robert's house and his friend gave her alcohol. She didn't drink, but she took it and she started to black out. Her drink was probably drugged with something. That night, she lost her virginity to Robert. So the girls kept coming around the studio and one of the bodyguards was making eyes at Lizette's friend. But she really wasn't into it. She's the bold one. She pretty much was just doing her best to stay close to Lizette and protect her. But whenever they were at the studio, the bodyguard would pull her to the side while Robert would take Lizette into another room. 
Robert was very careful to make sure that no one ever saw him with Lizette, and she felt like he was trying to keep her hidden. Before long, he pressured her to tell her friend to stop coming along. Lizette's parents got word that she was dating an older man and they did not approve, so she moved out and, like, went to live at her friend's house, and then she would just pretty much spend most of her time in the studio or at Robert's Hotel in Miami and then in Chicago. Lizette says that early on, Robert had people follow her and keep tabs on her at all times. One of the first instances of abuse was when she was 17 and she just glanced at somebody. And I guess Robert took her outside and smacked her and told her that she is not allowed to look at anyone except him. She just cried and said okay, and that's basically what she did from then on when he would abuse her. She had to ask him for permission to use the bathroom or to eat, and sometimes he would withhold food just to punish her. He humiliated her by making her perform sex acts in front of his friends. She knew that he was seeing other women, but she had no idea that he was married. She didn't even know that he was married until, like, a year into the marriage. She says that the relationship had warning signs, but they came in phases and she didn't recognize them right away. She says that he started making her call him daddy and controlling what she wore. He was known to make his girlfriends wear baggy clothes so they wouldn't be appealing to other men. He soon made her engage in sexual acts against her will, like anal sex and threesome with other girls. Again, he's her first. She's never had sex with anyone before Robert, so she was getting vibes that Robert was into some strange things sexually, but she didn't really understand for sure, and he would, like, charm her and talk her out of it and or talk her into it and make it seem like it was something totally normal. One night, Lizette just asked him if he had other girls over, and he just beat the shit out of her. He grabbed her, and he drug her into another room, and then security came. They asked her if she was okay, but Robert was, like, hiding behind the door, giving her looks, as if saying, if you say something, I'm really gonna kill you. So she just said, I'm fine. After getting physical, he would be all, I love you, I love you, I'm sorry, you know I'm going to help you and do everything for you, but you just have to listen to me. Like, it all came down to her not listening or not behaving. During her senior year of high school, she found out that she was pregnant, but sadly, she miscarried a few days later. She tried to contact Robert, but he was nowhere to be found. The final straw was about a year later when she caught mononucleosis. Apparently, he had mono first and didn't tell her. So she went to the hospital and they told her that she had mono and that she could go home. And he was still nowhere to be found. So the mono actually turned into Guillain-Barre, which is a disorder where your body's immune system attacks your nerves. So she was very, very sick. Her body was shutting down and she was almost completely paralyzed. Her lungs almost collapsed and she spent almost three weeks in intensive care in Miami. Her parents called him and he sent her mom a check for a $1,000. He never went to visit or called to see how she was or anything, and that was super painful for her. So she finally decided to walk away from him. After that, Lizette basically gave up on music. She decided she didn't want to do it anymore. She just wanted a normal life. She was able to move on. She married a high school crush and had twins. She kept quiet for years until she saw a report on TV that mentioned Robert settling several lawsuits brought by other underage girls. She was contacted by a lawyer named Susan Loggins, but decided not to move forward with the case. Susan Loggins did, however, spend the next two decades pursuing cases brought by underage girls against R. Kelly. 
She's represented at least six girls against him as far as what's been confirmed. Most of these cases were settled out of court and only three lawsuits were actually filed against Robert by Susan's firm. The first case was Tiffany Hawkins. The second is Tracy Sampson. Tracy Sampson was 16 when she met Robert. She was an aspiring rapper, but she also wanted to work in all aspects of the music business. So she got an internship in marketing with Epic Records, and she tapped along with her supervisor to an expo, and that's where she met Robert. She asked him for an autograph, he hugged her, and he wrote down his phone number and said, call me, and then he hugged her again. Tracy at first talked to him on the phone, and then he invited her to his studio in Chicago. According to the lawsuit, Robert led Tracy by the hand into a room where they kissed, and then he asked her for a hand job. She refused, and then he started to masturbate himself in front of her. The sexual contact between Tracy and Robert went on from the spring of 2000 to the fall of 2001. Jim and his partner, Abden, were shocked to find this out because they were literally investigating R. Kelly during this time, and there he was preying on another underage girl. Tracy has since said, I was lied to by him. I was coerced into receiving oral sex from a girl I did not want to have sex with. I was often treated as his personal sex object and cast aside. He would tell me to come to his studio and have sex with him and then tell me to go. He often tried to control every aspect of my life, including who I would see and where I would go. During our sexual encounters, he would make me do disgusting things like stick my finger up his butt. As a result of this relationship, I am seeking a counselor. I have increased stress in my life. I am afraid of trusting people. I get headaches whenever I see or hear Robert Kelly. I cry when I think about the things that he made me do. She later said that during sex, Robert would often say, tell daddy how old you are. Ugh. Fucking creep. The lawsuit included records about Tracy's psychiatric care, the phone records that corroborated her account of the relationship, as well as travel records showing that she also crossed state lines with him. This case was also settled out of court. Robert paid Tracy $250,000, just like Tiffany, to drop the lawsuit, and Tracy also signed an NDA, just like Tiffany. Tracy was actually fired from her internship. Her supervisor told her that she was a stupid bitch and shouldn't have talked to R. Kelly. That supervisor sounds like a cunt, too. She says that Rob is a nice guy and he's just trouble. And totally victim blames, saying shit like, Girls like to get themselves in these situations and then turn around and sue the man. They're just starstruck. Bitch! Like, these are children! Of course they're starstruck and he's a grown man taking advantage of that. Promising to make them stars? Most of these girls are virgins and don't even know what's normal and what's not. 2002, Susan brought her third claim against Robert. This was Patrice Jones, who met Robert in 1998 when she was 16. For the first time, many of the media outlets in Chicago reported on this lawsuit the day it was filed. Robert's attorneys denied the accusation and vowed to never settle. But eight months later, they paid Patrice to drop the lawsuit in exchange for signing an NDA. Patrice's story is just as bad as all the others. She met Robert at a rock and roll McDonald's. Apparently, Robert hung out there often, presumably to pick up these young girls. For real though, why is he hanging out at this teenage hangout McDonald's and also going to malls and then also just going to choir practice at this high school? Like, what? Like, that's not weird to anybody? Okay. Well, according to the lawsuit, in December 1998, around 11.30 p.m., 
Patrice and her cousin Charisse walked into the McDonald's wearing gowns after their winter ball at school. They spotted Robert staring at them and they instantly just fangirled. They giggled and they waved at him and he smiled and waved back. Then one of the bodyguards approached Patrice and guess, guess, what do you think he did? He put a napkin in her hand with Robert's phone number in it and he told her that Robert would like for her to call him but that she shouldn't tell anybody. Naturally, she instantly told Charisse. They ran outside to their limo where they had their dates waiting for them, and they just gushed about it to their dates. And of course, the guys didn't believe them, so they went inside, and sure enough, they saw R. Kelly sitting there right in front of their eyes. So, the whole group was really excited except for Patrice's date. He had heard the stories about R. Kelly's taste, and said that he had once tried to pick up his sister. Patrice was also an aspiring singer. A week after the ball, she called the number on the napkin, and Robert invited her to visit his studio in Chicago. Dude, every single one of these stories sounds exactly the same. So Patrice told Robert that she was 16, but it wasn't long before they started having sex. Patrice's lawsuit alleges that she had sex with Robert, and sometimes another woman would be there to watch them have sex. It also states that Robert's, quote, aunt, took her shopping for clothes at his discretion. Robert often calls Regina Daniels his publicist, Aunt Regina, even though they're not related. Again, Robert pledged his love to Patrice and promised that he would help her launch her music career, but they never recorded together. In September 99, when Patrice was 17, she informed Robert that she was pregnant. Robert insisted on an abortion, so the bodyguard took her to get one, but she told the doctor that she changed her mind and she left still allegedly carrying Robert's baby. That night, Robert put her up in a hotel, and when he went there to see her, he exploded. She says that she cried inconsolably, and he he was basically screaming at her and threatening her, and then finally he started crying, saying that his career was going to be ruined. So he convinced her to get the abortion. The next day, she went back to the clinic and admitted that she had lied about her age, saying she was 18 when she was only 17 and again tried to flee without getting the abortion. The bodyguard went after her and dragged her back to the clinic and paid for the abortion with $300 in cash. The relationship ended less than three months later in December 99, but Patrice was crushed. This lawsuit also was settled in 2003 in exchange for another non-disclosure agreement. Interestingly, none of these cases that Susan Loggins took ever led to criminal charges against Robert. She had said, you can't turn these into criminal cases unless the girls are really dedicated to being witnesses, and they're coming to me as a civil lawyer. They're coming to me as saying, I have a case against R. Kelly. They know all I can do is sue for money and damages. I've never done a criminal case in my lifetime. Something to consider, though, is that these girls were children. They were young, and after the word got out that Tiffany hired Susan Loggins, teenagers might have started to trust her. Not only that, but the girls Loggins represented came from black neighborhoods with long histories of reasons not to trust law enforcement. If you think about it, Susan screwed them. She's represented at least three girls so far, and Robert keeps getting away with this shit, finding new girls to prey on, and she's literally just, like, accepting payments in exchange for NDAs instead of encouraging her clients to press charges. When Jim asks her about her views on the girls she represented, this is what she had to say. They don't look at it negatively when it's happening. They look at it as a positive thing, that R. Kelly is their boyfriend. 
It's not until later when he dumps them and they try to get a job in the music industry that they realize they're blackballed. They get older and realize that they screwed up and they fell for it. It's like any young girl feels when she gets dumped by a guy. At that point, they start telling people, look at this bad thing that happened to me. And when they come to us as a civil lawyer, there's no benefit to them to bring a civil case. I hate this bitch. Well, that quote didn't age well. With the Me Too movement bringing their new scrutiny to men who abuse their power to sexually assault women. So Jim interviewed her again and read her quote to her, and then he asked her if she stood by that comment. She said, yep, that's true. And then reminded Jim that she has a degree in psychology and wondered why he was still bothering with R. Kelly. I mean, all that tells me is that she's kind of arrogant, but I don't have a degree in psychology, so what do I know? Alright, well this is getting long as fuck already, so I'm gonna go ahead and stop here for part one. There's still a lot to talk about, there's a shit ton more victims, and then there's the trial that, that eventually happens, and then there's new victims, and a sex call, and just a whole bunch of shit, so bear with me, because there's a lot that I need you guys to hear. Oh yeah, and before I forget, a couple days ago a story came out that a young man, or I think it was actually a 17 year old boy, has accused R. Kelly of sexually assaulted him. I will cover that as well in a future episode, but if you want to look it up so you know what I'm talking about, you'll see that this story is, like, exactly the same as Robert's other victims. I'll also link an article on BrokenLimelight.com under this episode's show notes if you want to check that out. Thanks again for listening to Broken Limelight. You can now follow Broken Limelight Podcast on Facebook, or if you're on TikTok or Instagram, you can follow me there as well. The links are listed on the website, brokenlimelight.com. I'll also be uploading my show notes and photos about this case there, so be sure to check that out. If you enjoy my podcast, please tell your friends. Feel free to suggest any cases you'd like to hear about. You can email me at ddwest at brokenlimelight.com. See you next time. Bye! Today's episode is brought to you by Hunt a Killer. Hunt a Killer is a monthly mystery subscription box that's truly one of a kind. It's basically like a crime case in a box. It comes with case files, codes to decipher, detailed backgrounds about the suspects and the victims. There's evidence for you to evaluate. It tells an immersive story of a whole crime case from beginning to end. It's kind of like an escape room in a box. You can do this by yourself, or you can team up with a buddy, or do it for like a game night or even a date night. You can take a little break from technology and immerse yourself fully into this box, or if you prefer to be more of a high-tech investigator, you can join online communities and talk to other Hunt a Killer players about clues and stuff. Hunt a Killer also shares part of its proceeds with the Cold Case Foundation, which helps with real-life cold cases. The best part is that Broken Limelight listeners get 20% off of their first subscription box. So get started now at huntakiller.com and be sure to use code BROKENLIMELIGHT to get your 20% off.